Well, good morning, church family. If you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to Matthew chapter 5? We're going to continue in the Sermon on the Mount this morning with a message entitled Radical Love, Embracing, embracing the Way of Jesus. We're going to look at verses, we're going to finish out chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 38 through 48. All of us want to be liked. We, of course, have all known some people that kind of act like they don't want that, you know, but most of us make an effort to, to play well with others. Most of the time, we treat people, well, like the way we want to be treated. We treat people in a way that, that we hope will cause them to, to have positive feelings toward us. And sometimes that works, and sometimes that doesn't work. Unfortunately, there are times when people just flat out decide they don't like us. And that's despite our best attempts to be cordial and kind to them, to be as friendly as we know how to be. Despite that, they, they've just made a decision that they don't like us. They'll even say something like, well, I can't quite put my finger on it, but I just don't like him or her. And that's not a good feeling. It hurts. It's disappointing. And who knows why people make a choice not to like us, even to become our enemy. And what can we do when someone makes us their enemy? Now, too often, the inclination is to do what? To strike back. Someone has labeled it the plan and pounce policy. Someone else has called it the don't get mad, get even mindset. You've heard that before. But does, does that, let me ask you, does that kind of attitude help anything? I mean, is anything positive going to come out of retaliation? The sad reality is, is that often retaliation produces even greater animosity and even more hateful actions and leaves us feeling worse rather than better. Jesus says there's a better way. As a matter of fact, he gives us a radical solution to an age-old problem. Instead of retaliating against our enemies, Jesus says we should love them by doing good to them. And I would love to have been on that mountainside that day to hear the outcry. You have got to be kidding me. I mean, love them? If you knew what they said, Jesus, if you knew what they did, Jesus, you wouldn't say that. How can you expect us to love folks who are cruel and unjust to us? No, I mean, nobody could do that, Jesus. Who would even want to do that? Even your disciples have limits, don't they, Jesus? And there's no doubt that as followers of Jesus, we do have limits. But when it comes to love, our, our limits are far beyond what we imagine them to be. And the limitation comes to our love. Understand this, the limitation comes to our love when we begin thinking and reacting like the world thinks and reacts. Because the world's philosophy uh, of how to handle your enemy is far different from biblical Christianity. There's this sad plight of the world's mentality, of secular mentality, is revealed in statements that are misconstrued and misappropriated like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In other words, it's about demanding justice. And listen, there's nothing wrong with justice. Hear me, hear me clearly here. But, but far too often the reason people demand justice is because they've come to believe that they are entitled to some special consideration when it comes to their rights. In our own Declaration of Independence, the, the, Flamers, the, the Framers 
declared that certain rights were unalienable. They were given to us, endowed to us by our Creator, and the forefathers said that truth was self-evident. But this idea of, of rights has been taken to extremes and now is a defining and, and detrimental characteristic to our society. Everyone has special rights, it seems, except the rights of the unborn child growing in their mother's womb. But aside from that, folks talk about human rights and women's rights and children's rights and workers' rights and the rights of criminals and the rights of illegal aliens, the rights of those in the LBTGQ community, the rights of children to choose their gender at an age when their parents are still making choo-choo noises to get them to eat their vegetables. A lot of folks these days believe their segment of the population has pretty much exclusive rights regardless of how their rights infringe upon someone else's rights. And in many cases, they not only plead for them, but they take to the streets to loot and burn and injure, or worse, to demand those rights. And that progresses to the idea that justice will provide these rights, and so they demand justice. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, the obvious problem with that philosophy, and you've heard this before, is that pretty soon everybody's going to be blind and toothless. The problem with some of our solutions is that they, they hurt us as much as they hurt others. And the secular modus operandi of the world, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, says you've got to strike back. You've got to retaliate. You've got to get even. You've got to do unto others before they do unto you. But that's not the teaching of Jesus. Beloved, that is not biblical Christianity. So please stand, church family, and hear the word of our Lord. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the, righteous, on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Lord, today as we examine this passage, or perhaps more aptly put, this passage examines us as the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and our lives. I pray you'll speak through me. Help each of us, starting with me, Father, to hear what you have to say to us through your word today. And apply the, this difficult principle to our lives, that we might make a difference for your kingdom and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. So we hear Jesus talking about turning the other cheek when someone slaps you, giving them your, your undergarment, not only your undergarment, but your outer garment as well, going beyond the bare minimum for those who would take what is yours by force. About, he talks about going the second mile, 
It talks about giving with no thought of restitution to someone who's in need. Love, this is radical stuff. It was radical stuff for his original hearers, and it's radical stuff for us. And if we're honest, that there's something within us that, that pushes back against this kind of talk. Something that kind of makes us feel a little bit taken advantage of. Something that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, listen, who's going to take care of me and mine if we live like this all the time? I mean, won't folks just run over me if I live like this all the time? Surely there has to be some kind of compromise, some other way of looking at this passage that shows that Jesus didn't literally mean what he was saying here. Now, you already know this. The people, they were under Roman rule, and every Roman soldier could require any Hebrew to carry his heavy backpack in one direction. That person had to stop whatever it was they were doing and obey that direction, that command, immediately. Jesus tells those earlier followers, yes, go ahead and do that, and then go another mile. Go, go a second mile. Now, in principle, that means any form of service in which we find ourselves compelled rather than volunteers, when we're robbed of our liberty in, in that sense, we shouldn't complain. Jesus is saying we shouldn't refuse, but instead we should relinquish even more of our liberty. And, and rather than... Uh, uh, rebel or refuse or retaliate we should relinquish even more of our rights see our, our rights are, are are not so dear as to to be cherished and that we compromise our witness or we compromise our righteousness and what jesus is getting at here when he tells us to go the second mile is that he's giving us a key he's giving us a key to to unlock the door leading to freedom freedom from the anxiety that comes inevitably comes and overwhelms those who demand and cling to their precious rights. Some have referred to this as the power of the second mile. You might have heard that phrase before. Jesus knew what He was doing when He gave us the command to love our enemies and to do good to those who do evil to us. He knew that there was positive power in that kind of response. He, he knew that retaliation only feeds the negative emotions of hostility, making things worse. He knew that type of response only escalates the conflict and everybody winds up getting hurt. Retaliation is a lose-lose. And the sooner we realize that, the easier for us to begin to walk down this road that Jesus calls us to walk. The sooner we realize that, the sooner we begin to understand the three lessons of the second mile and apply them to our life. And the first one is this. Going the second mile will break the cycle of hostility. Going the second mile will break the cycle of hostility. So by loving in a, in a calm and, and loving way, by responding in a calm and loving way, we, we can lower the temperature. We can actually lower the temperature of our conflict by a few degrees. In, in Proverbs 15:1, we're told that a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. As we respond by turning the other cheek, giving more than, than, than is required, our coke as, as well as our shirt going the extra mile, too, when we're only asked to go one, we deal an unanticipated, stifling blow to the cycle of hostility. And this comes out in a variety of situations we all face regularly. It works when someone refuses to allow you to merge into traffic. It, it works when you're waiting in a long line at the store and someone 
give somebody else cutsies. It works when someone interrupts your conversation. It works when someone speaks harshly to you. If, if we lash out in anger, that's the expected response. When, when we're in any of those situations, we only, we're only going to escalate the conflict. If we are instead kind and generous and patient, which is the unexpected response, then we catch our potential adversary off guard. Often they're so unsure, they're made so unsure by our response that they don't know how to respond themselves. And they consciously or subconsciously dial back to anger. I see this all the time in my job at Columbia Point. I'll roll up on a group with my little golf cart and my little green marshals flag, and they're, they, just, they got their hackles up when they see me coming. We've done something wrong. He's fixing to fuss at us, and I can see it in their eyes and hear it in their voice. But I'll roll up, and I'll say, Hey, guys, having a good time today? I hope your game's going good. I just want you to know that I'm here for you. I'm here to make sure you enjoy your day at Columbia Point. If there's anything I can do at any time, don't hesitate to call upon me. Oh, by the way, you cannot drive your golf cart across the middle of the green. <laughs> they don't know how to react. They don't know what to say. They dial back the anger. They don't even mean to. Also works in a marriage relationship. When you, when you sense tensions rising because your spouse is irritable or tired or disappointed, you've got a decision to make. You can reciprocate in kind. You can sharpen your tone. You can raise your voice. You can become irritable yourself. You can use passive-aggressive behavior maybe even. Or, or you can respond with patience and kindness and gentleness. And which do you suppose works better? Right? And I hear you right now. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's easy, especially when the conflict is blowing and going, and maybe you've said a word or maybe a lot of words in anger, words that you didn't mean to say really, words you'd take back if you only could. But even then, even then, if we'll just take a breath, exercise some self-control, and admit that maybe perhaps we were wrong. Say that with me, wrong. Hard word to say sometimes. Exercise some self-control. Admit that we're wrong or mistaken or maybe we overreacted and ask for forgiveness. We can dial back the tension and we can make a way forward so that we can effectively deal with whatever caused the conflict to begin with. And again, I know that's easier said than done. There's something within most of us. I don't have this issue. It hates to admit we're wrong. Even when other people, even when we know that we're wrong. Especially when we're a little heated and we feel like we're the victim, like we're the one that's being wrong. But if we can just be big enough, beloved, if we can just be big enough to take the first step toward a ceasefire in that marital spat, we can experience the power of the second mile there. It works on the job when it seems like our bosses or our co-workers are doing their dead-level best to irritate us. Students, it works at school when we feel like a, a, another student is trying to push our buttons or bullies are flexing their muscle or gossip is going viral on TikTok or Instagram or whatever platform you're on. In those situations, we have a choice. We can, in effect, pour gasoline on the fire or we can reach for the fire extinguisher, which is how we respond so lesson one is going that going the second mile breaks the cycle of hostility lesson two going the second mile is a way to communicate the gospel of jesus christ so let me ask you what is the real mark of a christian 
Is it, is it having a lapel pin that says Jesus is number one? He is number one, by the way. But is that all there is to it? Is it responding to social media posts that says, if you really love Jesus, you'll send this to ten of your best friends right now? Is it a superficial praise the Lord every time something happens, good or bad? Actually, we do praise the Lord, but is that all there is to it? Of course, it's not just any one of those things. The real mark of a Christian is what? Come on. Love. What are we talking about today? Come on, beloved. Jesus said the world would know we were Christians by our love in John 13, 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, that is loving one another, men will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. So the true mark of Christianity is selfless love and a willingness might not be called to do it, but a willingness to lay down our lives for others. That's what Jesus did. And to lay down our life is, in effect, laying down our rights. When Jesus hung there on the cross of Calvary, He wasn't there simply because Rome had capitulated to the unruly Jewish mob. He was not on the cross because things had gotten beyond His control. He was the, and is the Lord of the universe. Could have called 10,000 angels to His side had He so desired. Not to mention, if anyone had a reasonable expectation of rights, it's Christ. But He chose to lay down His divine rights. In fact, He chose to do that when He left heaven, emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in human likeness. When Paul writes in Philippians, he emptied himself to become a man. He means he let go of all. He gave up everything, all of which was his by right as God the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity. And he reaffirmed that laying aside of his rights in the Garden of Gethsemane, right when he said to his Father, Not my will be done, but your will be done, Father. Beloved, that's how Jesus loved us. And that's how we're to love others. This is the kind of love that lays down rights for the sake of others. This is the kind of love. This is the kind of love that causes missionaries, causes missionaries to reach out to the very tribes that killed their spouse or their friends or their co-workers. This is the kind of love that enables you and me to love the unlovable. And we come to understand as we love others with this kind of love and are loved ourselves with this kind of love that it is a supernaturally powerful love that's clearly not of this world. So loving with this kind of love will communicate the gospel. It will break the cycle of hostility. And going the second mile will also fuel our walk with God. How will it do that? It will free us. It will free us from carrying around the baggage of bitterness and anger and vengefulness, even hatred. And when your heart is, is free, when your heart is truly free in Christ, there is nothing of any consequence that man or earth can do to you that really matters. But if we'll keep our eyes on the cross, if we'll keep our eyes fixed on Jesus constantly, the world can bring its worst to bear upon us. Man can do his worst to us, and it will matter little to us. The power of the second mile will fuel the fire of your faith. It will warm your spirit. It will diminish 
those worldly desires that you're trying to hang on to, it will fan and fan into flame your devotion to Jesus, and it'll help you exercise self-control when the words and actions of others are leading you to want to lash out. Which begs the question, why don't we experience this kind of fiery, passion-filled faith more than we do? A lot of reasons, perhaps. It could be that we're unwilling to go the extra mile. It could be that we go the extra mile, but we're motivated by what we're going to get out of it. Beloved, if we go the extra mile, it must be for the sake of the extra mile alone. Following the example of our Lord and Savior, we're going to go fueled by a love that is generous and unprompted by what's in it for us. Listen, that's the kind of love that draws others to God, even in our day. I believe this firmly. Young, old, believers, those yet to believe, one reason this draw is so compelling is because this kind of love makes other folks want to love in the same way. The world today, I truly believe this, is looking for those who love like this, and many of them want to be a part of a church filled with folks who love like this. So going the extra mile has power for us today, right now, right here. It'll break the cycle of hostility, it will communicate the gospel, and it will fuel our passion, our walk with God. The power of the second mile is the power of God to transform our lives and the lives of others. Jesus goes on in verse 43. He says, You have heard that it was said... You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That second statement is in many respects one of the most difficult of the teachings of Jesus in the entire Sermon on the Mount. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. One writer complained that it was impossible for a man to fulfill that word. How, how can a person, how can, you, how can you expect a person to love an enemy who has harmed him or maybe even killed a member of his family. It's hard enough to love close family members sometimes, or friends, much less our neighbor across the street. Does Jesus really expect us to love our enemies and pray for them? Many people decide that's not what He really means, or they ignore it. Nowhere in Scripture are we told to hate our enemy. But hatred for the enemy has always been an assumed position, taken for granted, normal, acceptable. Paul, excuse me, Saul, speaking to David, says if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? And then you have 14 imprecatory psalms where David is calling for a hellfire to be rained down upon his enemies. Most assume that one was obligated to love their neighbor, but their enemy... Here again, as he's done throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls us to a higher standard of righteousness, commanding us to love both our neighbor and our enemy. Now we need to understand something. We need to understand that hate and love do not necessarily have to do with emotions. L love, when contrasted with hate in this Hebrew phraseology here, can simply mean to favor or to prefer to hate, conversely, 
can mean to disfavor, as in giving someone the cold shoulder. So it sounds something like this. Well, I, I don't hate the guy. I just don't want to spend any time with him. I don't want to hang out with him. We, we may not demonstrate blatant hatred toward our enemy, but we play golf with, we go out to eat with, we invite over to our home, we go on vacation only with those we call friends. And here's where that higher standard to which Jesus calls us comes into play again. Because you see, it's about more than not just feeling hate for your enemies, being overtly mean to them. If we're to love our enemies as we're commanded by our Savior, we must reach out to them and make an effort to include them in our circle. Hmm. Unfortunately, there's a, an inclination, even among Christians, to adhere to the ways of the world with regard to love in this sense. The world says, hey, use your common sense. Love the ones who love you, or, or love the ones from whom you can get something back. And for those who hate you, you just hate them right back. And that's where the religious leaders of Jesus' day were. They were teaching and practicing a distorted principle which they taught was wrongly supported by Scripture. When Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, He was talking about the religious teaching of the Pharisees, which was supposedly rooted in Scripture. And if we take a close look at Leviticus 19.18, we see this teaching on loving our enemies. And let me paraphrase from the message translation. Don't seek revenge or carry a grudge against any of your people. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am God. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am God. Any ambiguity there for you? Pretty clear, isn't it? What happened, though, was that over time, the religious leaders began to put their own spin on that ancient text. And they did this to accommodate themselves. They did it to bring this hard teaching of God more in line with the more comfortable and acceptable wisdom of the world in which they lived. And what they did was take something away from the Word and then add a little something extra to the Word. And we know that in Leviticus 19, 18, we're clearly told how we're to love our neighbors. We're to love them as what? As we do ourselves. So you... you Listen, what cannot be taken away from that very proper interpretation is any shallow or superficial application of the word love. If we're going to love someone, genuinely love someone, as we love ourselves, well, we know what that's going to look like, don't we? We're going to love them in a way that has their best interest at heart. We're going to take great care in loving them we know we're going to do that. How do we know we're going to do that? Because that's what we do to ourselves if we're in a healthy mind and spirit, right? But the religious leaders had over time conveniently omitted that all-important phrase, as yourself. So they took something away. But they also made a slight addition to make a significant difference, and that, of course, is hate your enemy. Super convenient because it lined up with the worldly philosophy of the day. The only problem is it wasn't what Jesus, or God, had in mind at all. 
if we consider the context of Leviticus 19.18, as we always should, we see that plainly we're told here that we're never to seek revenge or carry a grudge. So the religious leaders of Jesus' day were putting their own spin on Old Testament teachings, at best a distortion of the truth, and at worst, outright misrepresentation of Scripture to justify evil desires. And to this twisted way of thinking, Jesus offers an authoritative and a radical word, a word that has the power to transform lives if we'll only apply it. He says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous, on, excuse me, on the just and the unjust. That's another translation, as you know. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Corey Ten Boom, in her autobiographical, her autobiographical story, The Hiding Place, writes the following. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS soldier who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrook. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face, that's her sister. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said, to think that, as you say, God has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity, and so again I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, she writes, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart, sprang a love for this stranger which almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered, hear me now, and so I discovered that it is not our forgiveness any more than our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but His. Beloved, when Jesus tells us to love our enemies, He gives us, along with the command, the love itself. If we take an honest look at this text, we see the, the radically transformed behavior to which Jesus calls us, but we also discover the power to live in it, a power that we don't possess in and of ourselves. The point is that Jesus doesn't call us to live and love like the world. He wants us to rise above the mediocrity of mere men by the supernatural power available to he who lives within us. His desire is that we live and love in a manner that we're not capable of in our own strength. 
We need, we need to understand when Jesus says, love your enemies, the love of which he speaks is a particular kind of love. The love is called agape. You've heard this before. The love that we receive from God and we give out to the world. A love empowered by God. It's not necessarily emotion, although it may involve emotion. It's love in action. It's love that seeks the welfare of another. It's a love that manifests itself in deeds. That's how we're to love our enemies. Next, we see that Jesus tells us to pray for those who persecute you. And I now know what some of you are thinking. I'll pray for them, all right. But no, Jesus says that we should really pray for them and lift them up, lift their needs up, ask that the Father might bless them, that He might work powerfully in their lives. Pray that they would be blessed by God. See His goodness. See His grace. See His love. And to perhaps, they perhaps no longer be our enemies, but come to the point where they see the truth and turn their heart and life over to God. Jesus goes on to tell us that if we conduct ourselves in this manner, we'll be identifying ourselves as the children of God. We should do this so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, verse 45, for He makes His Son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Now, how do we show the watching world that we are authentic children of God? by demonstrating His love and concern. And we don't do that to earn salvation. It's because we're saved that we love others. We expose who we are and whose we are by what we do. As His children, we must love all people. All people. Say all people. The people that are around you every day let me ask you this. Do people that are around you every day know you as a child of God? You see, it matters because we're, we're to demonstrate this unbiased love just as He shows no bias with His love. That's what the text says, right? He makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. The point Jesus is making is that His Father pours out blessings without Partiality. He doesn't just bless those who love Him, right? He sends His blessings without regard to whether the one receiving them deserves them or not. And aren't we glad that He does? So Jesus, once again, calls us to a higher standard of living than the world around us. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? We are not called to live by the same standard as the world. No, we're called to live by a standard that is not only higher, but is impossible. The point Jesus is making is that to do this, to love like this, as He commands, we must live by the power of God. He's calling us to do what in our own strength we cannot possibly do. The only way we can hope to love our enemies is to live by His power. He's calling us, beloved, to empty ourselves. For we are weak and vacillating. And to let His strength Fill us, for He's powerful. The weakness of God is stronger than men.
doesn't take any special effort to keep our eyes fixed on ourselves. It comes quite naturally to us. We're pretty good at it. Not, to, not too hard to be so self-centered that we wind up being irritated and disagreeable most of the time. In fact, that's a really common and convenient way a lot of folks get through life. Just take an adversarial attitude toward everyone on a consistent basis and act irritably toward everyone most of the time and, and no one's going to have any expectation that you'll be kind of the person who'll love like this. Love anyone except perhaps perhaps those closest to you and only then when they please you. Maybe everyone will leave you so alone that you won't have to do the really difficult thing. Love the unlovable. It takes a genuinely committed child of God whose eyes are fixed, I mean glued, on the Savior to rise above the mire of this kind of mediocre thinking and live in the love and humility by the power of the Holy Spirit. Finally, Jesus tells us to be like our Heavenly Father. You therefore must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Beloved, the unwavering call to the Christian is to be like our Father in heaven. It's God's purpose to shape each and every one of us in this room into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. We are called to surrender our lives so that He can mold us into the image of Christ. That word for perfect in the Greek, you've heard this before, is often translated mature and simply means to reach a, a stage of completion. And because of this, some of them say, Jesus doesn't actually mean here to be perfect, as in without flaw. They, they say this because they can't imagine Jesus really asking us to be perfect. And it's true that none of us are perfect, and it's true that none of us are ever going to be perfect in this life. But that does not lessen the power of Jesus' words. Jesus is calling us to be perfect in our text. And the context tells us He's talking about loving with a perfect love, about striving to love others as our Father does. Now, how can this be? I mean, how can He ask us to be perfect when He knows we can't be perfect. He calls us to be perfect because perfection is our standard. How can there be any other? Can we have something less, say, imperfection as our standard for us as believers? No, because our standard is God Himself. We, we can never hold up any other kind of standard by which we judge ourselves. If we do that, we are inevitably going to fall far below the level that God intends for us. Our standard, our desire must be to be like Jesus. Our call is to be people whose lives reflect the character and the nature of the God we love. Our Father in heaven It's a call to be like Christ. Now I'll end with this. I'm ask an important and penetrating question, I believe. Each one of us must answer perhaps the most profound question that you and I will ever face. Is there something special about you? I'm not asking you whether you're living a good, moral, decent life. I'm not asking you whether you say your prayers, come to Sunday school, never miss worship. That's not what I'm asking. You see, there are a lot of people that do all those things, but they're not Christians. 
If that's all you are, if that's all you do, what are you doing more than others? What is there that is uniquely special about you? Another way to ask this is, is there something of your father about you? It's a fact that that children sometimes do not resemble their parents very closely. People look at them and say, yeah, I see a a kind of a slight resemblance. They've got the same nose, got the same eyes. see a little bit of her her mother in the way she carries herself. There's not a whole lot, but there's something there. Is there just that much of God about you, beloved? That's the test, you see, for all of us. Because if God is our Father, somewhere somewhere or other, in some form or another, the family likeness will be there. The traces of our parentage will inevitably appear. So I'm going to ask you the question again. Is there something special about you? May God give us the grace and the humility that as we look closely at ourselves, we may discover something of the uniqueness, something of the separateness that not only distinguishes us from the world and its way of loving, but which proclaims that we are indeed the loving children of our Father who's in heaven. Would you pray with me? Father, what a blessing to be in your house today. To start off our time of worship by celebrating the joy of baptism, the joy of this sign of a life committed to your Son, Jesus Christ, and how that hearkens all of us who've been baptized back to those moments when our faith was fresh and we were on fire for your Son, Jesus, and we're so sensitive and when it comes to the, talking about the cross, we remember those hours. We remember those days. Father, we yearn for that kind of passion again. May those of us who are here who have been baptized recall those moments. And may those who are here today who have never been baptized, who have yet perhaps to make a decision for Jesus Christ, be prompted by the Holy Spirit to do so today. Father, we've been reminded today of, of some tough teaching. We find it easy most of the time to love our family and our friends. We, we're really good at loving ourselves. Father, you know us. Father, we struggle when it comes to loving those who are opposed to us, perhaps even have labeled themselves as enemies of us. And we hear clear teaching today that is you're calling us to just that. We want to lean into the power that you give us to do that, Father, because we can't do it in ourselves. I pray that you'll... Just bring to bear upon each one of our minds here today, each person here today, that individual, those individuals in our sphere of influence whom we have alienated, whom we've stiff-armed, whom we've not approached for their fault, our fault, nobody's fault. We've just kind of labeled them an enemy, certainly not a friend, not someone we want to associate with. Father, we pray for your power to help us to embrace them. Help us to identify that each one of us here today, Father, to identify that person, our persons, those persons in our sphere of influence, and to go to them soon and rectify that situation. In Jesus' name we pray.